Uh, welcome everybody to episode 18 of the Dicing with Design podcast. Uh, the plans for the schedule have changed as it's been recorded and I thought I'd take a minute to explain to you the schedule. Uh, the discussion you're about to hear was all recorded in December 2013 uh, when we'd hoped to get our friend Matt to uh, join us in the discussion on world building. Unfortunately he was having some technical difficulties in getting online to talk to us uh, so this time around it was just your usual three hosts. I'm happy to say that not only did Matt defeat the Gremlins eventually to come and talk to us about world building at the end of January, uh, but we're also kindly rejoined by uh, Martin Vox of Black Box Games. He talked uh, about how he created a world for the Lords of War card game to exist in, as well as updates on his successfully funded Lords of War Kickstarter. Uh, this gave us so much content, we've actually decided to split the topic of world building over two episodes. Uh, so to recap, uh, keep listening for a development update on Joe's fantasy battle game Warpack, uh, followed by the main topic on world building. And in the next episode, episode 19, which should be up really within a week, uh, we talk to Martin about uh, the Lords of War, War building, world building, and also Matt about how he has created the world uh, in which we play our very long-running uh, When Worlds Collide uh, role-playing campaign. Uh, so enjoy uh, the next two episodes, guys. See ya. So, what have we been up to in gaming, guys? Uh, let's start with you, Call. Have you been doing any gaming? I have. I been doing any gaming? Not really, to be honest. I've done very little in the last couple of weeks. Um, what was the last thing? Ah, not since the last podcast, actually. That's pretty sad. Terrible. I, yeah. I, I've been playing. Um, I've been talking to. Um, I suppose one thing to mention. I've been talking to uh, Julian. Um, off uh, Rakes Games again, and he's um, he's coming out with his new Kickstarter. They're going to uh, release a new Kickstarter within the next month or so, I think. Uh, I passed it on to you. Did you get it? Yeah, yep. it's very different to the old one, isn't it? Totally yeah. different. In your direction. Yeah. So yeah, they get the game called. They're releasing a card game called Piffle, uh, which is totally family uh, aimed. It's like a kind of really quite quite a light card game, I guess. The graphics are really cartoony, quite fun stuff. Sort of, Relatively rules light, but um, uh, it still looks like it could be reasonably a little, a little bit of strategy to it. Maybe uh, I don't know. It's but yeah, for having a wee game with it anyway. It to me, it looked like a, a kind of um, cross between uh, Once Upon a Time and B Movie. It's just like card games that we've played. Oh yeah, you, know, you get your dealt cards, don't you? And you make a story from the things that are on the cards. Yes. Yeah, which can be characters or. Um, Quests or events or yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I the basic good fun. Yeah, the basic principle is you've got to get over these obstacles, but uh, and put stuff in the way of other people's obstacles, and uh, but tell a story as you go, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so which, from what I know, is, is quite similar to like once what once upon a time does, and it's um, kind of at a deeper level than B movie. B movie is the same kind of idea where you've got cards and you have to build um, a B movie title. Uh, okay. One word on each card, or something. Yeah. And you score points based on how good it sounds. So you've got negative ones you can play on other people's movie titles. Uh, okay. We played that. Have I played it? 
Yes, you have. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I enjoyed it. <laughs> at role playing lodge a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> no, I know. I know the game you mean. I, I've seen it and I've looked through the cards, but I can't remember actually playing it. Must have been drunk. <laughs> we don't yes. normally like to drink when we're gaming. Oh no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. That's uh, that's about it for me for the last couple of weeks. Um, I was just to, hoping to get a few games in over the Christmas at least, because I'll be. Um, I'll be up uh, your way, Grant, for a, a few days at least, for maybe four or five days, and Dylan will be there as well, so she'll be able to get a couple of games in, maybe. And Dave won't be, so we'll be able to play Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking at uh, the uh, Rakes games there. The Kickstart isn't online yet at, at time of no. recording, so if you want to know more about that, you'll have to look for Rayx Games, that's R-A-E-X Games, and... Uh, Piffle is on their top in the top page. Oh, the, he's still promoting us in the, on the front page. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. Uh, and speaking of Kickstarters, uh, I think I'll it's give us a bit of news here. We 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 single-handedly aided uh, Lord of <laughs> Lords of War in uh, being successful in their Kickstarters. So we're we're waiting for our share uh, of the of the funds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. It's a um, pretty fair comment, isn't it? <laughs> Quite balanced. <laughs> Lords of War is successful. Has been successful. Uh, they funded and reached a few stretch goals as well. I think that means. Um, I think that meant in the end uh, deck protectors for every for for all your cards. Yeah. Um, which is nice. Um, yeah, so well, well done to well done to Martin and uh, the folks at Black Box Games and the whole team uh, for that one. Congratulations! I look forward to seeing the, the new Templar and Undead cards. Yeah, yeah I can't wait to see. Did you guys get any of the extras? I got the Templars, Undead, and uh, went for the Matt as well. Oh, did you know? I didn't go for the Matt. I, I went for the uh, get the Orcs as well. So I'll have all, all the oh all yeah, the cool. mix and match. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't get around to it. I've been, I've been busy, and Friday came around. Because looking at the tin, that quick's quite nice. But um, no, I wound up, I wound up just the basic, basic backing in the end. Um. But, yeah. What gaming have you been up to recently, then, Grant? He said, been. Uh, Dylan's been with you. Yeah, we had had a pal. Dylan came round up to Aberdeen. He's doing some offshore training. So. Uh, uh, come around and stay with me, and we got some. It was just sedition. It was just sedition. Oh no! Wait, we played one game of Dreadball, which is fun. I've just I finished painting my uh, uh, vermin team, the rats. Um, oh, cool. Made a made a nice job of that as well. Um, what colour have you gone for? Orange and m maroon. Okay. Yeah. Sharp highlights, though. Sharp highlights. I'm being braver since since we went to uh, uh, throw in the skulls and saw everything that went into the into the cabinet. Even even the cloth bits were extremely sharp highlights, and I've been a bit braver with 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 doing those, and I think it's worked out quite nicely, especially on you know the armor. Anyway, in terms of the game, uh, what happened? I won because I you wouldn't won before. Treadball. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, it was fun again. Playing without the cards seems a bit more uh, a bit more streamlined. Uh, seems like there's enough going on in the game already. You don't really need the cards. 
I, I, like, I like the actions. It's quite good because the actions, if you play an action card on one of your players, you get a third action for for that player. But yeah, there is a lot going on. You can actually do quite a lot with one player in one turn if you make your rules well. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, the having a, playing with the third team that I've played it with or against the rats was was really interesting. They they're squirmy even if they can't hit the if they can't uh, throw the ball very well. They tend to squirm and and uh, you you can't just can't hit them, which is really frustrating. So you have to change your tactics, which is good. Um, yeah. What else was there? Sedition Wars, but I don't know, maybe we should save some Sedition Wars and do a sci-fi skirmish special at some point. Well, just give us a brief rundown on how it went this week and stuff. Uh, yeah, I remember last time saying I was really disappointed, but the, the games, I uh, played a couple of games of Sedition Wars, and it was, it was brilliant. Um, really enjoyed it this time. I think there's a couple, uh, we used the, they have suggested loadouts, suggested um, squad lists on on the Studio McVeigh forums or well on the Studio McVeigh uh, website, and that went really well. Uh, right. they, they they did seem balanced, and the whole feedback thing of whenever you kill, if you kill a zombie, it turns into a nano counter as these nano nano bots just sort of get released into the atmosphere and then can move around and infect infect players. And it's very free moving game, which I didn't realise before, because you don't get stuck on things when you move into combat, uh, or if you move into base contact with something. So you, your your marines basically can move around quite freely. Now, if they stand still, they get bonuses to fire, uh, and sometimes if they move, certain types of aliens are then allowed to react to that by jumping out. In fact, have to jump out at you. Um, so yeah, I, I was very impressed this time, and uh, which is a relief because that last game was awful. But yeah, it, it turns out that was my fault. So <laughs> it wasn't your fault. You just broke the game by <laughs> taking a, a list that was unbalanced. But well, I got some of the rules wrong as well. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was your fault then. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my game. Have you got anything, Joe, recently? Um, not so much in the way of, of tabletop gaming, uh, although I did get quite excitedly my uh, my proof copy of uh, Pro Wrestling Battle Royale, cool um, second edition arrived yesterday. And stuff. So I'm pleased with that. I'm pleased with the cards. They're looking pretty good. I, mean, I still need to make a few tweaks and change a few of the bits of art and stuff for the final version. But uh, overall, yeah, I think it's a good, it's a big improvement on the uh, on the original and the uh, kind of uh, card back that I've. Managed to cobble together actually looks quite good, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> good stuff. That's good. How does that work, Joe? Do you just is that put sort of part of um, a bigger order? You're allowed to get some proofs, or do you have to actually buy a proof copy initially? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it depends who you go to, but the, the great thing now is like Drive Through RPG, who are like a massive PDF um, seller online, yeah. of, and they've got all the sister sites, so they've got like their war gaming site. Uh, and the comic site and things like that. Yeah. I've just recently started doing cards, so it's print-on-demand cards, so you can literally just order one deck right. and print it up for you. Um, it's quite, it's quite specific about the PDF specifications you have to do yeah. to get that. Um, but once that's there, before you can um, sell a product, you have to accept the proof copy. Hmm. Um, 
and it's it's kind of like a Lulu for cards. Yeah. And it's it, it's all pretty new. Um, whereas it was if I'd gone through someone else like before I've used Superior Print on Demand, and for them, um, I think they just send you a digital proof, so you wouldn't see the actual proof, and then you'd do your big order, and because they're in America, you know, I'd want to do like quite a big order to make yeah. it worth it in terms yeah, of yeah. customs. So it's kind of a bit a bit risky that way. Yeah. <laughs> Our drive through RPG uh, British company. No, they're American. They're they're like uh, one bookshelf is the all-encompassing name. Yeah, okay. There used to be like a few different websites and things, and they've all merged. RPG Now as well, that was like one of them. So they've all merged under the uh, drive-through banner and stuff. So I, they're really big, but it was it was I was impressed with the quality of the cards that they produced. So the only thing is they can't do boxes. They can't do tuck boxes. So uh, okay. Elsewhere for that. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah, coming to a Kickstarter near you soon. Indeed, yeah. looking forward to that. <laughs> no, looking kind of forward to doing the uh, wrestling style video. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I've watched a lot of, a lot of wrestling this week. But, uh, <laughs> that's what it's not. And I've played a lot of XCOM as well. Yeah. Yeah, talk about Sedition Wars as well. It's the same kind of vibe, isn't it? Of, uh, yeah. yeah. Glad you got us addicted. <laughs> did you? Yeah. Did you uh, but the thing is, Joe, did you play? Th- have you played through it once? Yeah. I played through it once. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, do the same sort of slight cheating as I, in which you save every second turn just in case something dreadful happens? Wait, what on a combat mission? Yeah. No, not every second Aww. turn. <laughs> <laughs> so did you actually let guys die then? Yeah, I'd lost nineteen soldiers, but oh really? Oh, I lost one. You lost one. <laughs> Where I figured out I should be saving every second turn. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I'd do some. I lost. I lost Papa Bear on oh, really? like, the third to last mission. He'd lasted the whole way, <laughs> and then he just got himself murderized. And I revived him once, and then he just got shot again. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've nearly won this mission, and uh, shouldn't have been standing in the open just to fire a rocket anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to reload, I'm just going to press on and attack the alien ship. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I should have played it. I just don't have enough time to play it properly. It would have taken three times as long. <laughs> it must have taken you half as long again to be doing all those saves. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I say it was quite quick. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, is that all news then? Indeed. Okay. I could talk a bit about Warpack. I've been doing some work on that, or just trying okay. to get some of the factions, uh, some of the faction cards done. Oh yeah, I noticed that so, dropping into the Dropbox. I've been having without Microsoft. I've been having to do some oh, right, yeah. internet internet foo to uh, turn it into a PDF. I got like one page per card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah, if you don't have um, Office and a publisher, it's, it's difficult to see in the current format. But I, yeah. I'm planning to turn it all in PDF. And now that I've used uh, DriveThru and seen how easy it is to get single decks done, I can do that and I can get a few uh, faction decks printed up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also been thinking more about the the wider wider design of um, of Warpack and of the factions, and or whether to give just give the players like a toolkit where they can build 
whatever units they want or build whatever rules they need to fit the models they've got. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of veering more towards that, but I think it would be good to have like your fantasy staples, basic factions included just as a deck, just so you can grab them and just go. So you don't have to spend a long time starting up each unit. I, yeah, I think that's a good idea, Joe. I think there's a lot of people, you'll get people surely that want to build their own stuff, and if you make it quite obvious that people can uh, build their own sort of open factions, whatever the hell they like, that's really good, but uh, there'll be a lot of people who just want to play it off the shelf, won't they? So I've not want to spend that time building stuff. But it's the same with, with like war, Warhammer folk. Like I'd rather just pick up a painted army, can't be bothered painting anymore, but other people wouldn't dream of that. Got to paint everything you play, so. Yeah, that's a good point, like kind of accessibility versus like customizability. Yeah, exactly. I, suppose. But I think, it, yeah, you just want it to be able to, to get to actual play as quick as possible, Yeah. really. And then maybe have more in-depth options that you can yeah. play around with if you if you want, if you have the time. Yeah, I imagine with Wargaming, most people go that way, wouldn't they? They'd, well, I don't know about you guys. Did you get into that way? Like you'd start off with just a small amount, not really bothered about the painting, just try to play the game and then got into the painting afterwards. Um, I I really enjoy painting now, and I never thought I would. I always thought it would just be a chore, but I'm yeah. really I'm, it's what you spend most. If you do, if you do wargaming, it winds up, unless you do get someone else to paint it for you, it winds up what you spend most time on. Yeah, more, more than army lists, more than actually, certainly more than actually playing the game. Yeah. So yeah, you'll be hoping, Joe, for people to get into Warpack, have a play of it, try some of your armies, and then down the line start posting their own armies on uh, Warpack dedicated forums, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, that'd be that'd be good. But uh, but I'm thinking of like going with the, the toolkit approach, so that it, it should at least be vaguely balanced. If they whatever they come up with, have some sort of yeah. hard caps. Um, because that's, that's the only thing I don't like about the customizability. I'm worried that it, it'll just emerge that there's only a few optimal builds that <laughs> just hit. That's all that everyone uses. Yeah. That'd be boring. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the thing is, though, like, that's the same with Warhammer as well, isn't it? You get, because we listen to some of the Warhammer podcasts, you hear about these optimal builds and the kind of the power armies and stuff like that, but the 90% of the players never even hear that. They just go along and they play with their pals and they never really think so much about balance and mechanics and all that kind of thing. They just enjoy playing, I think. I think it's, it's the type of events that you go to. As yeah. The crowd you meet, because it sounds like uh, from the Sterling event, it was, it was a lot more kind of optimised lists than what we meet in Nottingham, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. For own schools. Yeah. Um, so I think, it, I think it's nice to just not not have that problem. Yeah. Not having to change. Like, like the way, I think... Foreign Schools has done really well, and they've got that best game vote, which helps uh, curb the optimal lists a bit. You know, yeah. you're unlikely to win the tournament if you build bring an army that's not fun to play against, yeah. which is quite a good way of doing it. But it's, it's not every event's going to do it like that. Some are going to want to have the hardcore players as hard as you, as you can yeah. to really test the limits of the game. <laughs> So I'd like it. I'm going to not kind of break in that kind of environment, not become unfun. Yeah. Yeah. So bring it back to the 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 rules. You've been certainly since we last spoke about Warpack. You're making a couple of uh, tweaks to the rules, haven't you, Joe? Uh, yes, I've made a couple of tweaks. I remember exactly. What, yeah, I've changed the. I've made morale a bit more um, important. It's a bit more deadly. It's like it's easier to pick up break counters now. You just take it from from casual, and you can take more than one a turn. Whereas in the older 
the version we played, you could only have one acquire one break count in a turn per unit, which meant made units quite robust. Even things like orcs and goblins that really shouldn't be. Um, so I've changed that, and I've just tried to simplify some of the movement slightly. So I'm just saying instead of wheeling, because I think I think David was saying I'll just get rid of the wheeling. It's, it doesn't make it's not worth the hassle of trying to calculate that. So I'm just now I'm just saying you just piddle, uh, piddle pivots from its centre point up to 45 degrees and that's it that's what you can do in a move yeah i don't think i don't think any many i think maybe elves you could see is wheeling and that's about it i don't see a, a rabble of 100 goblins marching in a parade ground formation <laughs> like that no it doesn't make sense and the wheels too it's used to get extra distance isn't it as well and it's Makes just makes it a bit, bit more unwieldy. So I think just a single pivot yeah. about the centre point is, is less, it's less likely to be abused. And and how and how much difference does it actually make in the end? Yeah, probably not. That probably much. very little. For the amount of extra yes. effort. Aye. Yeah, I like that. That's good, Joe. So so you'll only get basically you can move centre point to centre point your maximum move and. At the end, you can be for you can be facing basically forty-five degrees differently than you were before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So move. only one, only one. Turn if you wanted, so you could potentially wheel up to pivot up to ninety degrees if you just moved that turn. So because each move, because each unit gets two actions. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. So if you do yeah. double move, you can, yeah, yeah. Double up. So that's the maximum you can turn ninety degrees if you use both moves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Alright, so you can't do. You say you can't re reform to. Oh, well, you can still reform, but that's different. That takes up your movement. So. Yeah, it's just one whole move instead of yeah. So if you want to move even half an inch, you can only move forty-five degrees. You can only turn forty-five degrees. Yeah, it's nice and simple. Cool. Sorry, what we should say is it would take a whole move. You get two actions in a turn. You only get you only if you want to reform, it takes one whole action. No, it takes one whole point of movement. One whole point of movement, but a lot of oh yeah, yeah, a lot of units only have movement one. If you're slightly faster, like your cavalry or whatever, you can reform <coughs> and do one point of movement. Oh yeah, okay, sorry. Sounds good. Yeah, wheeling always got me, especially when you're playing Bretonians. Wheeling's a bit mental because you've got a <laughs> like a twelve-inch long thingy of horses, <laughs> yeah. and, and I can wheel one inch. And that's only one inch at the front, but the back horses move by like six inches. <laughs> the back horses are just dressaged. Yeah. Bit, you know, you, you've, you've just, yeah, your, your, front, your front horses have just moved up, galloped forward a couple of steps. Yeah. Your rear horses have just dressaged six inches to exactly. the left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and technically, technically I, could, I could wheel maybe four or five inches and basically turn them in 90 degrees because they're so, so narrow. <laughs> These horses like just swinging around at the yeah. back of the unit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's, a bit, it's a bit silly, and it leads to like as we were saying before, like tactics that are very, very gamey. Like you can yeah. do a really long unit and like goblins and wheel them to launch out fanatics. And yeah, stupid things like <laughs> or that, wheel into a building sense. or something stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, is that us for more pack? Is there any other other changes you've made? Any other change. Uh, the other change I'm just um, focusing on getting some of the the predefined factions done in in card format. So basically, um, the idea is like the deck will be like your army list. So you just pick whichever cards are going to represent the unit and decide how many ranks that unit is going to take, and you can add up the cost and then 
So they'll all be there in front of you with all the all the rules and the stats for each unit on their cards. So you could move them on from the table edge under the fog of war, or you can just have them to the side and um, lay the order cards next to them. Yeah, I like I do like that. I mean, a lot of the skirmish skirmish games, uh, Sedition Ward included, uh, have that one unit, one card per unit, sitting on a sort of sideboard area. Uh, if you have one available, or or sitting at the edge of the table to to mark on. I think with War Machine, what people do is they track things like wounds um, by putting in card sleeves and then putting on in a dry wipe marker. Uh, any anything needs to be tracked on there. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that for War Machine because there's, there's quite a lot of uh, hit boxes for some of the uh, big uh, war jacks and stuff. Yeah. So if you have different size units, you could sort of mark that onto, or different options that you're taking, like different weapon options, yeah, that you could take those off here. without having to print multiple loads and loads of cards, or you know, without having to send away for loads and loads of cards. Yeah, that sounds good. Aye, that's the idea. Make it uh, make it simple. Like and again, like if you're using the pre uh, pre-designed factions, then it's just about just getting them to play as quickly as possible. And like Grant says, yeah, uh, dry wipe marker or pencil marking on what weapons choice you've taken that time. And then next game, you could kit them out differently. So. Okay. Yep. So I look forward to. I think I'll probably use this your Sylvan elves maybe for the for my dark elf models. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping that they're, they're wide enough, although I might do a CL faction at some point, I think. that'd be If I was going to do another elf faction, that's what I'd do. I'd do a CL faction without seeing if they're good or yes. evil. And then <laughs> that'd, that'd yeah, absolutely. You'll you have some overlapping between between accepted versions of elves, but that's but that's fine. You know, you've got sort of small berserk elves in amongst the cult of chaos, uh, I noticed, or, or you'd yeah. started doing that in the list. So that, that's, yes. Why not? It'll take take the whole thing, take an entire list in a different direction if you're mixing and matching. From so you're if you mix and match things from different, even if we are using Games Workshop figures, um, make one faction have. I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> I say I'm trying not to mention things, but okay, if you have something that's like like witch elves in the same in the same faction. As the things that are like chaos warriors, then you wind up with a faction that's kind of unique. Yeah. And that you have small berserk troops, and you have large armored troops, and you wind up making make a story in your head that that has to include all these types of troops that will be different from the Games Workshop IP in your head. Indeed, and that is that is a good point because that brings us on <coughs> to our main topic, isn't it? Onto world building of how you create a world. For these battles to happen, or for these stories to happen in. Okay, so let's let's take a break there, and uh, we'll we'll come back with uh, world building. And we're back. Uh, we'll talk about world design. We're gonna uh, have Matt with us very soon to talk about uh, his own campaign world, which we all play in. Uh, but first of all, we have uh, Colin, Joe, and uh, we'll start off with Joe. What are your thoughts on um, the issues of wor world design and game design? It's world building. 
It's a big thing, isn't it? World building. I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of the fantasy genre or the fantasy tropes go back to Tolkien, don't they? We were even talking about different types of elves before, weren't we? Yeah. Now it's uh, how many games are there with like, elves, orcs, dwarves, and humans? All of them. Every one of them. Pretty much, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad how ripped off he is. I mean, obviously it's not really it's not really copyrighted or anything, but yeah, well, it, I mean, it's an interesting point of what is copyrighted and what isn't. Hobbits are, mm-hmm. aren't they? Like you can't use Hobbit. Hobbit's been copyrighted and Balrog yeah. as well. But but or I mean, elves you can't really, and dwarves you can't because they're folklore creatures. But orcs yeah. Yeah. were, as Tolkien envisaged them, I think he was pretty much the first to see them as like. Uh, a brutal warrior race. Really? Yeah, they didn't then, really exist yeah. before. In a, and certainly there wasn't any any kind of detailed world that made sense. Because yeah. before you've got like the oral tradition of uh, bards and storytelling and stuff, you know, going back centuries, but nothing. Um, Tolkien was the first to kind of build that fantasy world, wasn't it? to say like I want a, a coherent world and he built a lot of stuff that didn't even make it into his novel, isn't he? Like he, he created a whole language for Elvish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> created, created several many languages. Many languages, yeah, that are, are linguistically um feasible. <laughs> but the Hobbits are copyrighted, but people have used them in many things. Like they appear in D and D and stuff like that, don't uh, they? We have to call them halflings. Ah of course. Yeah, yeah sorry, you're right. I... So what about orcs? The orcs are used in quite a lot of different things. Yeah, orcs get used in loads of stuff. Um, but it's, it's when you go back to talking that that's the first time they appear as that kind of that kind of creature. Ah, sorry, you weren't so, saying they're copyrighted. It's the hobbits are kind of a trademark. The hobbits, the hobbits are a trademark. Yeah, but I'm, I was saying like um, in theory, the Tolkien estate probably could have copyrighted orcs or could have tried to at least. I think I think there is a word like orcius that appears in in the Beowulf saga, but. Mm-hmm. In that context, it kind of sounds like it refers to evil spirits or something like. It's like an old English world that no one's really sure exactly what it means anymore. Right. It might sound like it means like demon spirits or uh, evil spectres. It's hard to translate. It doesn't really sound like it's the uh, orky beings that uh, we meet in uh, Tolkien. Although Tolkien changed though, because from in the Hobbit, they're always referred to as goblins. And goblin, you couldn't copyright because like, the concept of a goblin is mm-hmm. pretty well established. I mean, not not the way they are now in fantasy, but a goblin is just some sort of malevolent creature or sprite or supernatural being was yeah. around. Because um, in The Hobbit, I think there's only one mention of orcs, which is right at the end, um, which implies that the, the goblins are the same as the orcs. Right. Um, yeah, they do seem to be yeah. kind of uh, almost uh, almost a continuum between orc and goblin. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes to look at Lord of the Rings, sometimes you can't tell what's what. So what? Yes. Yeah. So what do you, is that? What makes the or made the Tolkien world so popular? Then the fact that it was just he did all this background research, this stuff that didn't even go into the books. Because that's kind of to go into what we're probably going to mention is all Matt's world. The the thing that I think makes a good world or a world that I buy into is that it just gives you the feeling that there's all this crap out there that you don't even know about yet, <laughs> and it just kind of it just kind of gets dropped in every now and again. Like there's just you know there's a conversation between two characters and they mention something that you've never heard of before, and it's not even like it's not gone into. It's not like 
in sort of shallow books where you hear something mentioned and you think, oh, that's going to come up later, that'll be important. You know, they mention a name and it's like, oh, that could be the bad guy. But it's in more sort of involved deep books, they just mention all this stuff and it never even comes up again because it's there's mm. just so much there. I think that's a feeling of vastness. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Un- like, unexplored, yeah, there's, there's, there's a feeling that something to be discovered yeah. right there. Yeah, because with... With Tolkien's books, he he came up, he blew in, ended up writing them, what was it, the Silmarion, which kind of tried to get together all his appendices, didn't it? But it was just rubbish because it was just histories of all sorts of um, races and wars and all that kind of stuff that we didn't really care about. Yeah, there's no characterization, no real yeah. narrative. It's I remember just trying this... to read it once, but I just couldn't get yeah. into it. Yeah. The impression Me I got too, was, but... it was it was essentially a history book for a, for a fantasy, for a made-up world. <laughs> It was written like scripture. Oh, really? Stuff that, uh, stuff that I try to read. Awful. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, although that was the the the, um, the origin of pretty much most fantasy worlds, like Tolkien's own kind of origin tale, the Cimmerillion, and because uh, that's got Saur so, uh, and Boss in it, hasn't it? What's his oh, name? Is it? <laughs> Morgar or something, what's he called? It'll be on Wikipedia somewhere. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it, it, it's got all that. But that's, yeah, like you say, mostly ignored or unknown or slightly rejected by the, the fans. Yeah. In a way. Um. <laughs> I think it's the complex ones as well. Like, that's the world, the, when you talk about a world, a fancy world that I remember that I bought into the most. We always go. Always mention like Robert Jordan, Wheel of Time, basically because it's just got so much in it, and it's not. It's never cut and dry. There's never like pure bad guys, pure good guys. It's always there's shades of grey. There's you know all these races that just sort of suddenly turn up, and then they're like big characters in the story. And it, that that's the kind of that. I think that's a classic example of the type of world I was just talking, just talking about. There's just so much out there that he barely even brings into the story, but you just have a feeling that he could if he wanted to. It's just all there, right, for the for the using. Yeah, but and what I should say now is, are story worlds necessarily good for gaming in, or good for game worlds? Because that the Middle Earth's not designed to be a game world, is it? It's not designed mm-hmm. for people to play in it. It's designed to tell a particular epic narrative. Yeah, yeah. yeah like one one reason why it's yeah. So I was going to say the same with the, the Wheel of Time or um, the Game of Thrones, Song of Fire and Ice. Yeah. Yeah, though, especially, in fact, more than any of them, uh, Robert Jordan, uh, The Wheel of Time, because it's actually written in characters who bend the story around themselves. It's almost almost a bit of a, it's almost like a bit of um, behind the behind the fourth wall a little bit, where he's basically admitting, yeah, these, these people break the Break the rules, and yeah. I can just write in. I can write in coinc- useful coincidences, and I've got an excuse because they are Taviran, and they, they, they. <laughs> what is it called? They, they, the pattern weaves itself around them. It's basically yeah. I can write in. I can write whatever, whatever plot holes I want. Basically, yeah. they translate. Yeah, translate. They are PCs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Except for the other PCs, there's no excuse for them. <laughs> <laughs> The other main characters that come yeah, in, yeah. Uh, who who have just as many bad uh, coincidences happen to them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> never mind that. Yeah. 
That's a good point. But then, sorry, the point is because then, and we talked about this as well, where could you, where you have a character like that in the universe who bends everything to their will, you you feel just you would feel unimportant if you're playing Star Wars or mm. Song of Ice and Fire. You you know the most important things that are happening, and you know the most interesting characters are in the fiction that it's written. Yeah. You can only ever eke out your own little corner of it. Or you could take the you could take the view that you are able to change events that happen in the movie or the book. Mm, but that's that's a, a big step to take, isn't it, I think? Because generally if you're playing in a world you're starting from the point of like everything that's established is canon and stuff. You can't turn up in Star Wars and like beat Chewbacca up or something so, so, he, <laughs> so he doesn't meet Luke or something <laughs> yeah no I think I didn't bring up um, sort of book stories with the thought that they could be used for gaming because I think you're right yeah. it's too, they're too tied down but I'm just it trying to think of fun. yeah how you would build a world for a game that might be like that because I yeah, think yeah, yeah. Like yeah, you could you could have a game in a story, but yeah, you're right. It depends on where the story is, whether you're going to set it chronologically, whether you're going to set it at the end, or I suppose probably if you were going to do that, the best thing to do would be to set the game like a hundred years after. So like a hundred years after Rand, uh, oops, sorry, spoilers, uh, at the end of uh, Wheel of Time, and um, you know whatever happens after that. So you can you can have the same world, you can have the same nations, all that type of stuff, but create your own story, I guess. Yeah, but um, would that do you think that would require like buy-in from the players to already know the stories that had gone before? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but so that's the problem. As we're as we're saying, Dave, Dave doesn't like uh, Battlestar Galactica. He hasn't watched it. Um, <laughs> mind you, you like it, Joe. I like the game. I've never watched it. I never really got into the new TV series. So it's uh, to me, it's like Babylon Five, isn't it? You have to either have to watch it all and become obsessed, or you see the odd one, you just think, no, it's all right, but I'm not that bothered. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, because you're, that's because you're wrong, Joe. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I haven't become obsessed yet by watching it. <laughs> Maybe if I did sit down and watch it all, I'd get into it. <laughs> yeah. So those are predetermined fiction worlds. Is there anything more to say about that? Should we move on to maybe, maybe. building from scratch or pre or you know preset campaign worlds? Yeah, let's let's maybe look at um, let's look at like Warhammer World then, shall we? Mm-hmm. There's there's a world that has been built for gaming in. It's been custom yeah. designed. The idea behind it was uh, well, the idea behind it was like they did lost the uh, exclusive license for D and D in Europe, so Games Workshop wanted their own world. Yeah, to set because they built these mo- all these models for playing D and D with, which is why they got the. There's one of these are stuck with dwarves and orcs, uh, and uh, chaos warriors even. The whole idea of chaos was they don't have chaos warriors in the original D and D. I don't think so. No, I think. Oh, okay. Chaos was uh, chaos was part of their own uh, creation. Well, it was it was spun off from the uh, Michael Moorcock in Eternal Champion, uh, Elric books. That I think that was the first kind of fantasy literary source that cited the, the conflict between chaos and law. 
I think that's what the early Games Workshop designers were influenced by quite a lot. But then the the way they made Chaos a Force in the Warhammer world is like the the defining characteristic of that world almost, isn't it? Yeah, that that is the big thing. The rest, you know, yeah. even even down the lizard men are quite cool as well. But really, the yeah, what defines Warhammer World is the four chaos gods more than anything. Oh, and and the Skaven. Well, that that's that's um, part of it evolving or they, them changing the world over time. Like originally, it was just chaos. Chaos was a crypting power, and the Skaven were a different kind of beast men. They were oh, beast men. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't. You know, it wasn't, and then you know they worshipped the horn rat, but it wasn't clear whether the horn rat was just a different manifestation of one of the other chaos gods and the other ruinous powers, especially maybe Nurgle or something, because there's such links to plague and pestilence. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the later years, they've wanted to make all the Warhammer factions more separate and kind of moved away from chaos as an all-consuming power. Chaos is like its own book that does its chaos things, and like orcs do their own thing, Skaven do their own thing, Beastmen do their own thing. They're all evil, but they're not chaos anymore. Whereas I think in the original world, they all were influenced by chaos. Like even orcs and goblins, you get chaos orcs and chaos goblins that have been corrupted and mutated. It was like mm-hmm. an all-encompassing power threat to the, the universe. Okay, so to role, sorry to role, so to role playing in it then, or I suppose just playing it. I mean, you you play in a couple of ways. You got role playing game, and you got your I suppose computer games as well, and the and the the war, war game. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got a few ways to to come at it, and it was kind of um, yeah be, between being a, a role playing game and a war game at that stage. So when they were deciding whether to go more miniatures or more following the, the D&D model. Um, and as, as such, is that, is that the kind of thing you'd want to replicate in world building? Because it does kind of have vastness. That it is huge, isn't it, the one world? There's a lot going on, a lot of different continents and things. Um, yeah. And the fact geographically, uh, or the, the physical geography, is actually very similar to the real world. It's, it's a bit, it looks kind of post uh, post apocalyptic or, or post um some sort of cataclysmic event has happened. The the elf the elf world is basically in the middle of the Atlantic and it looks like it's come from a massive crater, um, a, ma- a massive uh, meteor strike into the middle of the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it gives you it links back in and it also has all this clear kind of uh, talking Esque or talking drive races and, and themes, doesn't it? Like the elves are a dying race. They mm-hmm. were once all powerful, but their, their time has pretty much come. Uh, the humans and the new race who stand between the barbarous orcs and the evil powers of chaos, which you can pretty much just exchange chaos for Sauron, can't you? Mm-hmm. I thought I heard something for a minute there, but. Probably just a dream. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> okay. Um, I, mean, I was just, so, I was just uh, the only thing to the Warhammer stuff. They they basically did just that, didn't they? They they've built a history, and just sort of inviting you to take it forward. Essentially, I guess is that sort of the secret. Yeah, and as soon as you do, as soon as it is taken forward, and we I think we talked in a very recent episode about how the there has been user defined. Uh, background 
Oh, yeah. In, in the, the Storm of Chaos, for instance. Mm-hmm. But every time you do move it forward, they reset it to yes. the point where everything's just... They, they always reset it. And I suppose this is one way of, of creating a world that's interesting, is you re- keep resetting things back to the point where everything's going to come crashing together. Like, Chaos is just about to attack, which will lead to something for a war game, the, the most interesting... Where you know the lizard men are just a way to open up portals around the world and jump up and ju- jump out and recapture their old glories, or the the dark elves are just about—they're always just about to come back and to Ulthuan to destroy the to destroy the high elves, and it's always just about to kick off, just so it's because battles are about to happen and everyone hates each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's. Can, that kind of stasis is, is needed for the war game to make sense, really, isn't it? But at the same time, it feels like it doesn't really matter what you do. Although, you know, it matters in your individual campaigns, but the whole the overall plotline is never really going to move on, um, unlike in, say, Rockagon, which we were going to talk yeah. about. Uh, Legend of the Five Rings, card game, role-playing game, and... Uh, they had the clans and factions, didn't they? This is like the fantasy Japanese style um, samurai game. Um, but they did have global events, didn't they, which moved the plot line on. Although, yeah, did it really it move on that much, or did it always still <laughs> seem Shadowlands was always about to attack, wasn't it? <laughs> well, sometimes they spill over, sometimes they find allies within the. Allies within the uh, within the empire, and usually it's if somebody's made up a. I guess it's if somebody's made up a mixed, in the big tournament is made up a mixed Shadowland and say Scorpion deck, then that's the, the plot that happened. They sold their souls uh, to the demons. Yeah, did they, how did they tie them in? So in, in a tournament, if uh, there was a big match and somebody. Like overcame a bunch of odds or something. They wrote that into the story. Like some character does something particularly memorable. I'm not sure how it was done exactly, but yeah, I, th- I don't know if it was done by looking at seeing which uh, clans had had the best results in that tournament, or whether it did come down to like the final and who was playing whichever deck. Yeah, to... the individual people. Yeah, they would they would look at that and look at um, moving the storyline on from that, and certain characters would die. Yeah. Or certain new characters emerge and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we should probably get on to uh, world building from scratch, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, design. so... We've talked so about previous designs, yeah. Are there any original ideas left? That's what I want to know. Uh, no. <laughs> what about cosmic kobolds? <laughs> well, that's very original. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get on that, but I've got to go on loads of things. Um... <laughs> I well, I'm curious. Why do why are there such a proliferation of um, elf and dwarf filled worlds? Why don't people come up with something completely new? Why aren't there entirely new races? Very often. It's an interesting point. I'm wondering if part of it is like familiarity and, and nostalgia, and like yeah. you know, you know what you're getting. Yeah. You don't have to read the whole background of the world. You can just go back to those tropes. You're like, oh yeah, I know that dwarves are like yeah. tough but grumpy, but generally good. I know yeah. that elves are a bit fey and ethereal, but good with bows. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes people play play on that and kind of 
go against expectations a bit. Aye, there's the old, bit, yeah. Well, yeah, in the Wheel of Time, there's the old gear who are you know, physically like big, brutal, ogre-type creatures, but they're actually pacifists. Yeah. And tree singers. Yeah. The, yeah, I think you're right, Joe. People like to... They don't... In a lot of ways, people are lazy, aren't they? they? They don't want to read a book and have to imagine these brand new creatures. They want to just sort of get stories about the stuff they know and love. But I'm just thinking of the one the one example I can think of for somebody that does completely create new beings, new things, um, is um, Ian M. Banks. So like some of the new, uh, uh, what do you call it, culture novels. He's got some crazy stuff in there, like the new beasties that he comes up with. I remember reading one just recently where he had these um, these gas-filled guys, like so, these aliens, which were basically just big balloons with tentacles hanging down, and you're like, but it, but it took a good sort of twenty, thirty pages to actually get in my head what these things looked like and what on earth they did. But it's, I don't know, it's a bit of a challenge to read through it, but it's quite cool when you do because it's so new and you just try to figure out how on earth these things can, you know, move about and interact with people. And <laughs> I'm not sure which way is the best, but. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, can you can you game with that? And yeah, when when you can struggle to struggle to get in even in even the fiction. Yeah. I mean, I played a quick Eclipse Phase, which is a, a post-human role-playing game, which is right. I find very difficult to get into my to to get into. Because it seems like, like, like artificial intelligence is awesome. Yeah, oh. which might have just. We we kind of woke up in a dungeon kind of thing. Where we woke up on a satellite. It's quite cool actually. We're going in an ever decreasing orbit. We had we had no memories, but there were, and there was only one droid to hold. We woke up in the computer of this uh, of this station, go into low orbit and burn up, and we had to try and upload ourselves off of the station because it wasn't connected to anything at the time, but there's only one droid, so one person had to sit in, had to, or sorry, one inte- one of our intelligences had to go into the droid and walk down this dark dark corridor, because there's no cameras there and no sensors there. It basically, the, there was no connection to the front and the back. I mean, physically, someone would just have to walk down the ca- corridor. But, you know, anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, it was really just just bizarre. It was, it was weird to, it was hard to find a... Uh, a motivation, like what? What do you live for when you don't really exist? You don't have a body uh, for to. Yeah. N- you know, do you, do you have a desire to? What do you gain money when it's just just a number in a in a bank account somewhere? <laughs> where you don't you don't need to sustain yourself. Uh, I, g- I guess you wouldn't really need to procreate. Um, what what le- what is there left? Yeah. When you're just uh, where you're just a brain, literally that. Almost literally that brain in a jar or a series of impulses. So it was great. It's an amazingly well thought out setting, but I, I found it very hard to Is it good to see how do I connect with this. I'd rather be an elf. Yeah. Um. So anyway, building building from scratch. Sorry, I've laid us off. That's no, um, We're just uh, shooting the breeze, but I think um it comes down to pre-game. Construction of a world versus in-game construction—that's a pretty big, pretty big thing. Is the whole concept of world building is normally like one person, the GM or the designer who's written a source book or whatever, has created the world, and then you, the players, the PCs, 
get to enter that world and like play about in that sandbox um, as one approach. And then the other approach would be uh, in a GMless game, it's going to have to be that way. But uh, actually, it doesn't have to be that way. There could be an established world that you come into. But in a, in a GMless game, you might have the option where you come in from scratch and we're saying, we're going to play this game, but we don't know what world it's going to be in. Uh, so we have a talk about what the world is, what the background is, um, before we start. It's what you did with the um, steampunk contenders, didn't you, Grant? Because you, when you started that game, you didn't even you hadn't even decided on the background, had you? Oh, we had a bit. Yeah, we we decided a few things. The name of the city uh, started with we, we talked about whether it should be, uh, you know, a a, fan, a complete fantasy world. Yeah, but or, that discussion is, is in game. Yeah. Uh, oh I mean? yeah, that's yeah. That's part of the process of play. It's not you coming in and saying, right, this is where it's going to be. Yeah, I didn't tell anyone that, you know, as as the person who's kind of moderating and introducing the game. I didn't come in and and decide that. But there are certain things that came up in as part of uh, dialogue where people were making stuff up. You know, there's a mansion here. This is where the evil guy lives. Uh, this is where my person lives. He's got a wife I didn't tell you about before. Uh, it's all, all part of the setting. There's a university, was there? Oh, yes, because I just mentioned that there is. And then there's kind of, you know, you you there is also stuff that we front loaded before we even started playing, which was things that you know would be ruled by someone called the preceptor. There would be uh, colonies off somewhere we could we could possibly go adventuring in, uh, the, you know, the level of technology and stuff like that. Which is, could you call, is that in game or is it? I would call that pre game. Although not, none of us came, it was side at the table. Yeah, it was at the table, not during the role playing. Yes, I mean we did another, yeah probably pre yeah pre game but um, within the session I suppose not it's not predetermined by the material yeah so yeah because in internal internal containers you have your uh, suggested setting yeah. of Oblum where you've left uh, you know you've got these sort of Possible settings, some some little plot hooks here and there that, that you can exploit if you choose to. Yeah, and then big swathes left open to kind of fill with whatever you need, but uh, enough of a setting, I hope, or I think anyway, to give you a decent game that if you just went to all the locations and used the characters there, you'd probably got enough to keep you going. Mm -hmm. So, what made you put that in, Joe? Was that on the basis that some people just don't want to create a world, they just want to play in a preset? story um it's it's partly that but mainly i think just as an example just to show like this is what this is what i've done this is what i've come up with this like if i'm going to play a game i might just start mm. here um so if you're going to go about it creating your own setting which i tend to advocate advocate quite heavily in my games because i think it increases the the buy-in to some extent from the, the the players like if if you feel like you've created the setting you know, there's bits you want to explore. You put things in that you're interested in. Um, so Oblin is an example of how to do it, and to show you that you know you don't need that much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's? I'm not. I'm not saying it's not here. I'm just playing devil's advocate. But do you think players do buy in more if they create it rather than if they're offered some kind of mysterious place to go and explore? I, I'm just thinking of. 
Mm. You know when you go along to a, a conference or something and, and you go to a session and suddenly you realize that the person in front of you is not going to say anything. They just get you to discuss and come up with your own ideas. You're like, well, you're the expert. Tell me. <laughs> Sometimes you get people that want to just be, you know, adventure and some. I don't know. If they create their own world, yeah, I'm not sure. Do they? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm saying there, but. I think, I think I know what you mean, yeah, and I think it's it's things that we've touched on before, like the kind of the exploration mystery side. Mm. Like it is quite it is quite fun to go into a world, not know that much about it, and have it revealed to you slightly, yeah. and have, always have that yeah. sense of of surprise. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, the other hand is like you've had a hand in saying what you want parts of the story to be about what kind of things you want to be going on in the background and then you're getting to explore them as they reveal themselves rather than having it all just totally um, coming from around the corner without you having a clue what's what's going on and yeah both ways both ways are good Um, but I think in general you get more buy-in if you've helped create the world because then you're guaranteed to have some things that that player is interested in in the world where sometimes if, if it's someone else's world, someone else's vision, it might just it just might not connect with you, or it might yeah. not work until you've played a few good few sessions and thought and actually start to, to see where they're going with it and what you think might be interesting. Yeah, I th- I almost think the best balance is um, what Matt said actually before we start recording, wasn't it? Around he has created a huge world that we were playing in constantly over the last ten years, but actually. Yeah. There's a huge. We've had a huge influence on how that world's turned out. As much as he created a kind of a skeleton or a template for us to play within, we've unwittingly almost fleshed it out, I suppose, during some of our adventures. So yeah, even though that's not a traditional uh, player-created game, it's role master. I mean, it's pretty strict, isn't it? Uh, it still it has been completely influenced by our. Characters, I guess, and the way but there are there are still some dark corners which we have not yeah. seen yet, and we're really eager to see yeah. after ten years of play. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, it'd be good to when we get that on to uh, have the full explanation from him. Yeah. See what, what he allows us to uh, see as we peek behind the curtain. Do yeah, we really want to see behind yeah. the curtain? I really want to know what's. Yeah, I think it's about time. <laughs> it is about time, isn't it? <laughs> All right. So, yeah. should we come back to should we come back to Matt after the break, or um, yeah. doing it from scratch? that we want to talk about. Um, I think we've mostly covered the GM's mind versus the collaborative approach. We've pretty much covered that, haven't we? But I just want to say more about it being a continuum. Mm-hmm. Then, like you say, striking the balance, I think, is the key to world building. So I think maybe just don't have too much world. You don't want too much, and you don't want too little, do you? You want enough to be able to to play the game and have a good experience with with just using what's there, I think. But you also want a big scope to make your own stuff up, explore the dark corners, see what else is going on, and then hook you in that way. I think that's that's kind of the sweet spot in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, Joe. It's, yeah, it's so that you're playing something that you know there is a bit of mystery, like you say, the dark corners, but it's not so shut down that you <laughs> you are just on rails and you're not going to be able to change anything whatsoever. That's kind of, it's like computer games, isn't it? You know, when you're playing a really crap computer game and you basically, <laughs> there's absolutely no change to the plot whatsoever, no matter what you do. 
Yeah, even a good computer, a lot of good computer games like that. You just yeah, totally. except they're on rails and you yeah. do the, the fighty bit or the strategy bit or whatever. Yeah, well, that's the advantage of playing with real human beings, isn't it? We can change it as we go. Yeah. <laughs> so we should take advantage of that. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to episode 18 of the Dicing with Design podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments about the points raised today or anything you'd like to hear from us uh, in the future. Uh, there are now more ways than ever to keep in touch with the show. We have a Facebook page and a Google Plus page. Uh, just search for Dicing with Design. And on Twitter, we're at DWD Podcast, as well as our email address, uh, podcast at dicingwithdesign.com. If you want to contact us individually, the best way to do that is usually through Twitter. Colin is at GamerColin. I'm at GrantSensei. And for all things Prince of Darkness games, you can follow Joe on at JoeJPrince. And if you could leave us a positive review on iTunes, that would help out the podcast a heck of a lot. Thanks a lot, guys. Next episode, we continue our discussion on world building with Martin Vox of Black Box Games and our GM extraordinaire, Matt Reed. Uh, until next time, enjoy your games. Which can pretty much just exchange chaos for Sauron, can't you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In a in a wider scheme. So and Matthew now we're joined joy. by Matt. Now we're joined by Matt. Yeah. So that's good. Oh. So Matt can give his his views. <coughs> oh, I'm actually I'm actually in bed. I was just gonna say good night. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I've it actually bit... managed to. My laptop is totally over overheated and I can't get it working with uh, Google Plus. So I've downloaded the app to my iPad. So I was just, are you on, are you on air? Are you doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so sorry, we now join Matthew in bed. Is there... <laughs> I just wish to. We, I've just logged into a. Uh, Wish the audience of a Dice with Design a, a good night. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bit weird. Joining my dreams. Boudoir. But you'll be joining us later. Is the iPad working? Is that, can you, are yeah, you hearing me? Yeah, the iPad okay, seems really good. Yeah, yeah, it's perfectly good. Right, that's just with nothing then. So I'll just use the iPad in future then. Forget about the laptop. <laughs> right. Well, sorry for the interruption. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you get on with it. Right. Talk just about chaos. I'll, 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 see, I'll, I'll see you later. I've no idea how to sign out and to log out. Okay. Um, Red okay. Uh, bye-bye. 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 Right. Well. <laughs> I thought I heard something for a minute there, but it's probably just a dream. Yeah, never mind. <laughs>